0: I'm your host, Amber Hollingsworth. I'm an addiction specialist, and I've been helping people beat addiction for more than 20 years now. This podcast is for people who want to know how to get through to an addicted loved one, for people who are tired of being told that they just need to stand back and wait for their loved one to decide to do something about it. Subscribe to this podcast to learn how to outsmart addiction and put this whole mess behind you for good.
1: All right. What's up, everybody? I'm happy to be here today. My name is Dan. I'm here to tell a little bit about my story. I had some hard times in my 30s. On my darkest days, I had turned to dumpster diving as a means to support my habit, to support my family. And some people in my life were watching this happen. And somebody called Child Protective Services, and my son was apprehended. And when the two social workers and the two police officers came to my door, they came in and they were laughing and they were pointing, They were acting wow. as though this was some sort of coffee break. And Yeah. The last thing that I handed my son on his way out the door was his puppy, his little stuffy that he had his whole life. And to remember that day, I had puppy tattooed on my arm. Wow! He's watching over my son when I couldn't. And that set in motion wheels that brought me ultimately to where I am today, sitting here with you.
0: Okay. So that's a pretty wild moment in your life. And it sounds like you're struggling, you're having a hard time, but... Is it like a knock on the door? Is it just police officers They just come in like on a movie or something? How does that happen? No, it wasn't (laughs) that
1: dramatic. Looking back now, it would have been like, that would have been something. But no, I have friends that happened too. But no, they knocked on the door and it was just like any other day. And when we opened that door, our lives changed. Wow. Yeah. For
0: everybody who is joining us, welcome. We're glad you're here. This is Dan. Dan is from his podcast called Hard Knocks Talks. And he's agreed to come in here today and be our expert witness and share with you about his journey into addiction and out of it. And he's got quite a story to tell you. I think you're really going to get a lot out of it. Dan, there's got to be a lot of backstory coming into this day that you're telling me that the social services is knocking on your door. So what in the world led you to that place?
1: We can go all the way back to the beginning. Like, I didn't necessarily grow up in around a lot of active addiction or a lot of active alcoholism. It does run in my family, and my father was already in recovery and maintaining it in productive ways when I came around. But I remember, like, years before my first drink, I remember like craving alcohol, like just craving. And maybe it wasn't alcohol that I was craving, maybe it was that I was craving. And, And like, I was having feelings that I didn't really know that I had until. One day I got loaded and realized that I didn't feel the same. And my dad would get angry with me. He would be like, because I was asking him questions. Like, what does beer taste like? What does vodka Mm -hmm. taste like? All of these questions. And they were persistent. And in knowing that now, looking back, like, I I definitely think that I was predisposed because, like I said, I didn't grow up in an environment where this was like normal or what some would consider normal.
0: But there was like a curiosity. There was something, a wanting to experience or know.
1: Yes, there absolutely was. And when I finally got my hands on it, I got drunk with my friend at the time. We were like 13 years old. And uh, in the basement of his house in the small town, Saskatchewan, we got absolutely loaded. I think I drank like two beer or something and I was just blacked out. And I woke up the next day and the bed I was laying in was wet. Like I, I wet the bed. My pants were across the room. I'm also soaking wet. You would think that an experience like that would be like, this sucks. I don't want to have this experience. I don't want to tell my friends about this. I am embarrassed, but that wasn't the case. I remember being proud as though I had achieved some level of rite of passage. By this time in my life, a lot of my friends had already started experimenting with alcohol. That was just the culture of the community that I grew up in. It wasn't necessarily Mm -hmm. in my home, but when I would go to school, friends would be talking about a drive past the bar on friday night or you walk there's cars lined up seems like the cool thing to do and, and you know what maybe it was maybe it was for a bit but I went to school and I was bragging. It wasn't in my mind at all that what I had done was wrong. And from that point on, it was all about Friday night. Like my whole life became about making sure that I had what I needed Friday night.
0: So for you, very quickly, the, I call it the obsession. The obsession started, right? It's like you had it once. The obsession started before you even had it. Yeah, so, yeah. Which is wild, right? So it's out the gate. You are hit mm-hmm. the ground running probably just... 100 miles an hour.
1: Yeah. And then I moved from a small town to a, what we call in Saskatchewan, a big city. <laughs> okay. At the time, like 200,000 people. It's bigger than that now. But I, I couldn't wait to get away from that town because it just seemed like no matter what click I wanted to, I didn't fit in with any of the kids. I didn't fit in with the jocks. I didn't fit in with the kids that were partying. I didn't fit in. And of course, looking back now, you realize that there were people that wanted to spend time with me, but though I didn't want to spend time with because I don't really understand why. But when I moved to Saskatoon, I did manage to find a small group of friends that we would smoke weed and we would play hacky sack and we would do what early 2000 kids or 90s kids would do. Okay. So yeah.
0: So if your dad was already in recovery and you're going down this path at 100 miles an hour, what were your parents doing? How were they responding to that at the time?
1: My mom and dad split when I was very young. I think I was like 11 or something when maybe I was 10 when they split. And my mom has been in the addictions field in our province here for as long as I've been alive. There's a treatment center here in Saskatchewan called Pine Lodge. And there's a picture on that wall in that treatment center of my mom sitting at her desk with a picture of me on that desk when I was like three years old. Yeah. So she's played a pretty significant part in the development of addiction services in Saskatchewan. And her knowing what she did at the time, she knew that you can't really force someone to step away from that unless there's some level of knowing that this is problematic. And yeah, but at
0: the same time, she and your dad must have known.
1: Oh, they did. They just knew. This how
0: scary when you work in this every day. I was just thinking to myself as an addiction counselor, dude, I know it's down there. And so it's so scary. It must have, they must have been terrified.
1: And I'm sure that they were, they didn't really express that to me. Like I said, my mom, she knew what was happening, but she didn't really add to the anxiety and the depression and, or whatever that was that I was feeling at the, we talked a little bit about it. My dad also talked with me a little bit about it, but there was never any heavy duty punishment. Okay. Because I think at the time, like they both knew that this punishment would only likely drive me in further.
0: Yeah. So looking back, even as a grown up now, you think that was the right decision?
1: I think so. It's such muddy waters. There's such a broad spectrum of needs that different people respond to. Looking back now, yeah, I don't really think that there could have been a much better path for them to take with me. Okay.
0: When did the substances start causing problems for you?
1: Pretty much right out the gate, really. Um, But I didn't know that. It took a number of years for me to know that. In fact, it was into my twenties and I was already using heavier substances that I started to realize this is a problem. I had graduated high school. I went to work. I became a welder and I got my journeyman certificate. So I was working in Northern Saskatchewan and Northern Alberta and I could go up North where substances are rampant. A bunch of tradesmen working in seclusion. uh, I wouldn't use I would be away from that social environment that I had pretty much put myself in for Mm -hmm. my whole adult and adolescent life. As soon as I was away from that, it wasn't that I had to try not to use. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to go up north. I'm not going to use. It Mm -hmm. wasn't like a thing in my mind. I would just go up north and not use. I would take my guitar up there with me and I would learn to play songs and I would work out. I would eat. Yeah. No, my whole life was different when I was working. I could just focus on me. I had no social obligations and obligations that I know now that I put on myself. I had to act a certain way. I could just be me. And I didn't even realize that I was just being me. It's the strangest thing. I don't really know how to. uh, It just happened, huh? Yeah, it just happened. Okay. Wow.
0: So you were using substances off and on. You got trained as a welder. You would go up, you would take these breaks or periods where you wouldn't use anything at all. And then you would go back and it would start again. What would happen?
1: Yeah. I would, as soon as I got back into town by this time, I, like I said, I, I owned a house. I had a race car. I had all the things that a 26 year old tradesman could probably want really. But as soon as I got back to the, to Saskatoon to town, where my friends were, it was on. And that wasn't even a decision really either. It was like, okay, I'm back here. It was just like breathing. You know what I mean? It was just mm-hmm. like, this is what you do to get through the day.
0: It's just your normal. It's almost like, Habit routine almost like neural pathways just take over. Yeah, okay. It is strange because I always think I'm from a small town in Tennessee, and when I go back home, it's almost like I turn into myself. From then, I feel like I felt then immediately just being there, and it is it does feel like it just pulls you back in to that place, the person you're that you are when you're there.
1: Yeah. In fact, it was around this time that I started to realize that I started to see the pattern. Okay. And I started like in my own behavior. And in 2008, after I'd been working a few years at different mine sites, there was a big layoff. I was working in Fort McMurray, Alberta. It's a big oil town here okay. in Canada. And in 2008, there was a massive layoff. Around this time, I had recently met a woman, Donna. She is my, my life partner, my wife, mother of my children. But that's when we met. Okay. And our most endearing quality in each other at that time was that we could use together. And she wouldn't get on my case because I was using too much. I wouldn't get on her case because we would always use together all the time. There was mm-hmm. no like, she's doing more than me or whatever. Can and, I ask what you were using?
0: Because people are going to uh, be wondering because I'm like Oh, yeah.
1: No, of course. <laughs> well, it was party drugs at first. Uh, I had already started using meth at that time. And in fact, for being honest, it was around that time that I introduced her to meth. But. That just escalated the partying. And when I got laid off, I remember driving back from Fort McMurray in my truck and driving down the highway. And this is not good because I'd already come to realize I could take a break when I went to work. Like this was (laughs) my safe place was not my safe place
0: anymore. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's when her and I, we pretty much jumped off a cliff together, metaphorically. Wow. Yeah. Okay.
0: So from there, the using just escalated for a while?
1: It did. Yeah. And I was still productive for a while. When I came back to Saskatoon, there was a point in my life where I, I thought I was going to be a, a cook. I thought I was going to be a meth cook.
0: A meth? Wait, hold on. Yeah. I was, <laughs> I was like, yeah, and then a meth cook?
1: Yeah, yeah. Not like the good kind of chef where... No, you know, I thought you meant things, like I was going to be a Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I dove into that. And despite my very best efforts and coming back from Fort McMurray, I was in good shape financially. I was able to afford equipment and mm-hmm. I did my best to break bad. Like I really did you and,
0: went uh, into it thinking
1: business entrepreneur style. This, this is my life. I'm path. about to be this the king. My king career. In- yeah, this, I'm going to sail off into the sunset and this is going to be amazing. Yeah, I'll right I, here. Yeah, that's what I thought. And despite my best efforts, I wasn't able to succeed. And thank God, looking back now and then after that didn't work out, I, I ended up starting a welding company and I went legit because like I sucked at being a criminal. Okay. And uh, yeah, it wasn't fruitful for me. And I was successful in that for a little while. Like okay. I didn't get super rich, but I ran it for a year and a half. But in that time, like we were using heavily. And uh, yeah, there was lots of times where I was up for days on end and then the phone would ring and I would have to go to a job site and it was a terrible way to live. it us moment- about a day
0: in the life, because there's a lot of people watching who really want to understand like, what is that like when, when you're stuck in the middle of it?
1: Yeah. And uh, I remember... It was during that time where we discovered opioids. As soon as we discovered those, yeah, like I was home. It was that was wonderful to me. And I remember the effects of those wearing off, or not being able to find them, and still having to go to work, spending a uh, hundred and seventy-five dollars just to get out of bed.
0: So, how much when you are in your active addiction in the cru- in the height of it? How much were you spending? Because a lot of people don't understand how expensive opioids are. I don't care how much money you have, you don't have enough for that.
1: You don't. <laughs> you really don't. At the height of it, now these are Canadian dollars, not American dollars. So at the height of it, between the two of us, we were spending a thousand dollars a day. Oh my god. Yeah. So it's probably around seven hundred and fifty American dollars.
0: A buttload.
1: It's about a buttload. Load. yes.
0: I'm just sitting here thinking, what do you have to do to come up with seven hundred and fifty dollars a day? That's just to feel the habit, not to pay the rent. Yeah, room. no, the party not was to over. Anything like to function, just like yeah, Dan yeah. is saying, to get up out the bed.
1: Yeah. And that's somewhere where I'll just say we didn't come by it honestly and we'll just put it leave. Okay. Yeah. We can
0: take we can read between the yeah. lines. Okay. Yeah. But one of the things that I've noticed, especially with the opioids, is you get on that four-hour treadmill, right? And that's when everything just falls apart because you can't function without it. And every four or five hours, you have to have more. And so you're stuck constantly getting the money for it, getting it, waiting for the dude to meet you in the parking lot. It just just consumes everything.
1: And that guy doesn't give a crap about your feelings. I'll tell you that right now. No, all of a sudden you'll be sitting there and he'll just stop answering his phone. And then what do you do? This is real life that you're dealing with here. You need these things to be able to even go to work to get the money you need to get them. And then you get stuck in a cycle where all you're doing is working so hard to get the money you need to get the dope so that you can be well enough to work to get the money you need to get the dope. And it it just never ends.
0: Yeah, you're just caught. And the treadmill goes faster and faster the longer you're on it. So if you could just imagine you're running on this treadmill and it's just speeding up incrementally the whole time the tolerance gets more you need more you've got to run faster and when you think about that it's easy to see how someone's life
1: could fall apart yeah and at some point like the phone stopped ringing my company shut down because I wasn't able to show up and when I did show up I didn't do very good work and I was late and this and that and all the things I got a job working for another company and that slowly just got worse and worse too I started to tarnish their reputation they trusted me with one of their welding trucks and I was going to job sites and I would just leave the job site in the middle of the day with the welding truck because I needed to hook up needed I was getting sick but and
0: I want I want to zone in there just a little bit Dan because Mm. we have a lot of families that watch Mm. and at this point in an addiction story and Dan you tell me if I'm wrong it's not about getting high no it's about surviving it's about he's not leaving work to go get high he's leaving work to get what he needs to just be okay, live.
1: Yeah. No, the, like I said before, the party was definitely over.
0: It's yeah. not fun anymore. No. And then you're trapped.
1: Yeah. I remember lots of times before work, like not even really dope sick yet or anything. First thing in the morning with looking at big lines on the coffee table and just crying because there's that's $175 or whatever that I, I if I don't take it, I'm going to get so sick I can't work.
0: And so if it was you and her, you both were on this treadmill and you both had to come up with the money. Yep. Wow. And at that point, it's like, I call it using against your will. Like you don't even want to be doing it, but 100%. you have to.
1: Yeah. It feels like that. Of mm-hmm. course, like we can all be like, this is a decision. Like I can decide to quit my job, to reach out for help, to do the things, go to meetings. Right tough out the withdrawal. I feel like I'm going to die. But when you're in that, when you're in that space in your mind, it's such in the moment, like, no, it's, it feels impossible. Like it feels like there's just no other alternative and it does feel against your will.
0: I'm so glad you said that because it's hard for people sometimes to understand why you don't just walk out of the room, walk out of the door and do something else. But you're right. You're so trapped on this treadmill (laughs) that you can't even stop long enough it's not like you're, you're backing up from your life and having these long conversations with yourself and these like epiphany moments, mm-hmm. making decisions about your life. You are in survival mode. Yeah. The house is on fire around you and you're yes. just fight or flight. surviving flight moment to moment. You can't even stop to think about it.
1: Yep. And then of course the thoughts, if I do go to detox, if I do go to treatment, like mm-hmm. that's like six weeks, how am mm-hmm. I going to pay my bills? Who's going to take care of the family? Who's Mm -hmm. going to this, that, the next thing, run the business, whatever, you know, these are, these are real life things and people can sit there and be like, do you want to live or do you want to die? I want to (laughs) live. But
0: you're trapped. And even if you could figure out, you can't stop long enough to figure out the answer to those questions. You can't stop long enough to make the 55 phone calls it takes to call to find out. Can I go there? Do you have it? So at that point, you just can't, if you slow down, the treadmill is going to throw you off the back end.
1: Yeah, (laughs) that's a fact. So yeah. one day I, one day I came home from work and I sat down and Donna curled up beside me and said with all of the tenderness and love that she could, that she was pregnant. Wow. Yeah. And when you are heavily addicted to fentanyl, that's a big realization. Even if you're in a good place in your life, that's like life changing. Oh my gosh. You know, yeah, like
0: any person would think, oh my gosh, can I handle this? Can I be a father? Yeah. But when you can't, you're, you're barely keeping your own head above water.
1: We, for a very short time, we thought, okay, we'll wean off on our own. And that very quickly, because we tried to do that before. And actually that's interesting. It's an interesting talking point. So many people say, oh, I did this for my kids. I got sober for my kids. Not everybody can do that. And and if you're watching right now and you're in that and you're a parent and you can't sober up, don't worry, you're not alone. You're not alone. You're not a monster. And you're loved. We got on the methadone maintenance program is what we did. And it worked. We found yeah. stability. The cravings went away. And Donna took care of herself. She ate well. She did the nesting thing. She did all the things as best we could at the time. Uh, I worked. Things leveled out. And then uh, when our son was born, born healthy, by the way, there was some complications at birth, but nothing to do with anything other than there was a a little bit too much medication administered. And (laughs) they actually, it it turned into a very big deal. I was at emergency C-section. Okay. Because his heartbeat dropped, right? But that's a whole story in itself. The long and short of it is he is healthy. He didn't need any sort of maintenance or anything. And for anyone who might not understand what that means, sometimes when the mother is on a maintenance program like methadone or Suboxone, Mm -hmm. sometimes the child needs to also have a certain amount of that and wean off slowly or whatever that looks like, that was not the case with our son for whatever reason. Wow. Yeah. And life went on. Oh, I've got a baby now. Go home. And we did the parenting thing and and we got everything as sorted as we could. And some renovations happened in the home and I went to work and she stayed home and cared for our son. And then let
0: me pause you right there, because I think there's an important point there. Yeah. Getting on the methadone, which for those of you don't know, is an opiate replacement medicine. It's also an opiate, but you get it legitimately at the place. There's a doctor and they give it to you. And it's not for everyone. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is it allowed you to get off of the four hour treadmill. Yes. And as soon as you are off, it's interesting because even though you said the opioid in you, but as soon as you're off and you're stabilized, you guys go back to being functioning adults. Right. So it's not that just addicts are just not functioning because they don't want to be functioning or because they don't care about themselves or they don't care. It's literally because they can't. Hmm. So as soon as you got that and you stabilize, you're working she's doing all the things that she needs to do. Mm-hmm. It's just, I just want families to understand that. Cause a lot, you may have a loved one who's not in that spot. And you may wonder what is wrong with you? Why aren't you doing the things, you know, a young person should do?
1: Yeah. And that, that happens a lot. It's just like your brain is so filled with solving the problem of staying well, that mm-hmm. you don't have time to tend. You don't have the capacity to tend to life in a meaningful way that is sustainable. Like you, that, that, I shouldn't say you, I should say that was my experience. I think, I, that's, I I
0: think that's the experience. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. If you'd like to get access to more advanced recovery skills, consider joining our private membership program. Each month you'll hear from myself, Campbell and Kim about our individual perspectives on an advanced recovery concept. And you'll get access to our members only live calls where you can submit questions and get feedback about your specific situation. To learn more about our
1: membership program, click the link in the description. So about six months after we had our son, we just got the itch. Oh, we've been doing so good. Opioids were our problem. We could probably do cocaine. Okay. And we did. And uh, and we got away with it first time. And well, we can do it on weekends then. And yeah. weekends, then Wednesdays, then Mondays, Tuesdays, Fridays, then, and now we're moved back to meth.
0: How long between making the decision, like using cocaine for the first time after, till it was back to oh. on, it was on, like how long of a time period are we talking?
1: If it was two months, I would be surprised. Okay. Quick. So, yeah, there, it's not I didn't mark it on the calendar, but it would it escalated very quickly, okay. just like it had every time in the past. Now we're using meth and we're like, I'm starting to have dirty talk screens because we have to take drug tests to stay on the That's methadone. And, methadone and okay. we, I kept pissing dirty and mm-hmm. got kicked off. So oh. we successfully weaned off of the methadone program and on to meth. Wow. Yeah. And that went on. That That didn't just stop on its own. But that this is getting to the place that we talked about a little bit earlier. I couldn't hold down a job anymore. I had big sores all over my face. I was um, letting my employer down time and time again, not showing up, doing bad work, having a bad attitude on job sites. Uh, they, and eventually it came to a place where they didn't have a choice. They didn't have the services to help me. They didn't know how to access services that could help me. And they couldn't keep me.
0: Did they know what was going on with you?
1: I didn't tell them, but it was glaringly obvious. Obvious, okay. Yeah, they definitely knew. And they, frankly, they kept me longer than they should have. They were very good employers, very good people. I did have an opportunity to go and make amends with them. And I think they landed okay, but I cost that company a lot. But I ran into them a few years later, actually Just in this past year, I ran into the two of the owners and they're like, oh, hey, definitely kind people. But anyways, so that's when I turned to a life of of scavenging, dumpster diving for copper, for bottles, for whatever I could get my hands on. I had this delusion that I was going to have a uh, recycling company. I was going to. Yeah, that was my plan. I was going to sign contracts with all the big companies in town that I had exclusive rights to their dumpster. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> Maybe not a terrible idea, actually, uh-huh. if done properly, but I was not doing that thing properly.
0: So let me ask you this then. Clearly, just listening to you, I can tell that you're just like an entrepreneur at heart, right? Like you were gonna have a meth business, you yeah. did have a welding business. Was this sort of just another spin on that, the way you're always trying to like think that, or is this more in the delusional at length?
1: I've always had an entrepreneurial streak, whether yeah. that was in wellness or otherwise. The means in which I thought I was going to get there I think was the delusional part and someone whose life is ruled by these illicit substances is hardly one set for success so things just can continue to spiral like the house filled up with garbage because I was bringing things home that were shiny but not valuable oh here's a VCR from 1980 I can fix this and then I just end up tearing it apart and taking a circuit board out of it or something it's the insanity of the substance i was using and yeah the house filled up with garbage i was recluse i was in the garage all the time donna was in the home trying to take care of our son and some really bad people started to show up we'd evaded that for our whole using career the gang life and that's been and at the very end some really bad people showed up
0: like people you owed money to? Not even heard? that. No, not okay. even
1: that. Just it just unwell people. Just We had a house. They could be in that house. Okay.
0: Okay. Just attracting that crowd because you're running yeah. in those circles. Okay. Yeah. I'm following.
1: And things just continued to get darker and darker until that day when child protection showed up. And now we're there.
0: Had you and Donna ever, during this stint, had you had
1: conversations
0: about it? Had you tried to get out of it? Had you even thought about
1: getting out of it? I, I think, I don't clearly remember, to be honest. Okay. I don't remember. I'm sure that there must have been plans hatched to find a better way. But nothing was taken seriously. Uh, as serious as we could. I know before our son was born, we did have some times where we tried to go to meetings. We tried to do it ourselves. We would get to day three. And this is when we were on opioids. Anybody mm-hmm. who's come off opioids knows that day three is like the day of reckoning. And we could never get past that. But no, we didn't really take any genuinely serious cracks at it. And even after our son was apprehended, just the pain from that drove us further apart. Now that thing that we were trying to be there for was now gone.
0: Like the one thing that kept you somewhat grounded
1: Yeah. at all. Yeah. Okay. So now, and he was placed with his grandparents. So it wasn't like he was completely detached from family, but we weren't allowed to see him. So it was shortly after that, that that Donna left and she went to a life on the streets with very unwell people. And that's the part of the story that's not mine to tell, but it got really challenging for her to say the very least. And then they, they kept coming back for a while. I would get text messages and we would go back and forth, me and this gang member, just saying horrible things to each other. I would get text messages saying what lights were on in my house at any given hour of the day. They were just to let me know they were watching. They're saying, I'd get text messages, say, come outside so I can kill you. Wow. Yeah, it got really bad. (laughs) And uh, then it got quiet. I had nothing left to steal. They got sick of, Mm -hmm. uh, there was a one, one instance where I was held hostage in my bathroom. I had an ax to my throat and I don't know, I guess they just got sick of torturing me and they Mm -hmm. left me alone and it got real quiet. And that's when my mom showed up one day. She said, Dan, let's go for lunch. And I'm like, I could eat. And keep in mind at this time, I, I wouldn't shower for six weeks at a time. I would be dumpster diving every single day. I wouldn't even take my boots off for weeks. I Sleeping on a couch with no cushions in a house with no heat.
0: Is that partially because time is different on that substance? Feels different? Who's to say? Okay.
1: Everything's different. Reality's okay. different. Yeah. It, it had gone to that place where there was just literally, there was nowhere left to go. There was a fork in the road and my mom takes me for lunch and she sits me down and I get a, I I think I got a beer and I'm sitting there drinking my beer and eating my burger. And she's, Dan, look like you, you got to go back up North and you got to find some stability and you got to get a home. You have to find, you have to work with the ministry and get your son back and, and be a dad and do all these things. And I looked at her in the face and I said, mom, don't I need to get clean first? And the look on her face changed and she said, yes. And she reached in her purse and she pulled out a form uh-huh. the form was all filled out. Wow. And she put it on the table and she pointed at the dotted line and she said, sign there. And I did. Wow. And 10 days later, I walked through detox doors. So
0: why did you sign there?
1: Because it was my choice. I came to a place where I had an opportunity to do better. And my mom knew with all of her experience working with people who are challenged with substance use, if she said, you have to go to detox, I wouldn't, I would have pushed back, but she got me to tell her. So that was the day I like to say that my mom Jedi mind tricked me into detox. That's
0: right.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It was ready because she knew that we're an impulsive bunch. And that's probably the, a, a big problem with the services that we have around here is that when someone who's using substances problematically and they can't stop
0: when they say this, they say i am
1: ready it's i'm ready right now right now capitalizing on that impulsive nature like right now yeah this is the hour of reckoning we do Mm -hmm. this now or i'm going to be back in the sticks
0: i'm so glad you said that because it's one of the things that we teach families is you got to be working behind the scenes to find options and you need to be sitting on ready because just like your mom she Probably didn't know exactly when you'd say I gotta do it, but she was gonna be ready when you did. Because if she hadn't been ready, that's right. She'd have missed the window. We call it like a window and you miss the window. Wow. Yeah.
1: If if I could say anything to parents and I'm not an addictions professional, like I'm just a guy that that's been through some stuff and I'm and using that to help people. If you can't you can love someone and not be able to be around them, but be ready. Just be ready. Have that plan.
0: What's your mom's name?
1: My mom's name is Brenda. Brenda's a boss. I like her. She is boss. I She's like still it. a boss. Hey, awesome. I like to say like she metaphorically, she sits in the corner waving a hard knocks talks flag with one hand and the other hands up ready to cuff me if I get out of line.
0: <laughs> That's good momming right there. I agree. I agree. <laughs> okay. So she whips this paper out of her purse. Like you hadn't even had a thought about this and you just signed yep. because at that moment it probably felt Thank God. Like an op- like a door opened.
1: Yep. So I went to detox. I did the thing. Worst Valentine's Day ever. And then I did the 10 days and then I got out for two days. I went back to my family. No desire to use. No desire to drink. No desire to go off on my own somewhere and do whatever. Why? Um, Why? I don't know. I don't know. The desire to use had been taken from me. That's what I know.
0: Is it Because it wasn't fun anymore at all. Like it was just misery.
1: Is it something else? Is it I'll remember, I never I'll never forget the last time that someone handed me a meth pipe like my mom had already pulled up in front of the house I saw her there she was coming to grab me to go to detox and someone handed me the pipe one last haul buddy here you go and I looked at it and it was all burnt and gross and in that moment I was like I don't want this anymore so I could have hauled on that and gotten a big gross blast and it would have been terrible but I was just done I was just done. And that's unfortunately, with the overdose crisis, the way that it is right now, unfortunately, so many people are being robbed of that experience. They don't have the opportunity to reach that space. But anyways, I did. I, I got through detox. I went to treatment for 28 days. They the Counselors kicked my ass around the treatment center. That's what works for me. That's okay. what works for me. Yeah, I'm the guy. Sit down, shut up, do the work. That's what worked for me early on. And it's not. it's not like I'm like, oh, yes, this is amazing. But I know myself well enough to know that there's lots of times in my life where I need to be like, I need someone to be like, Dan, you're making a mistake right now. And I need to be told that. And then I got out. But
0: it's a combination of being at a place of readiness and then that exactly. being
1: there. Because yeah.
0: I'm guessing there were other points. Somebody could have tried to do that and it wouldn't have worked.
1: But who's to say? Like they, they can't be around me 24 hours a right. day. Like Maybe there would have been. Maybe there was. I so I got out of treatment. I thought I was the best at recovery, you know, riding the pink cloud, so to speak. And I got out and I just said, mom, what do I do? I don't know what to do. What do I do? And she said, she said, go here and here and here and do the things. Work with the ministry, get access to your son, live with your brother, go to meetings. I'm like, can I have a ride? She's a no. She said, no, you can't have a ride. Get a bike. So I got a bike. And you know what? Looking back now, that became my story. I am the one who went to meetings. I went to the ministry. I got myself to those places.
0: It was part of the therapeutic process. Part of it. Wow.
1: I love it. And look, I'm glad she didn't give me a ride. And even at the time, even at the time, I think I had enough awareness. Like, I, I was grateful. Like, thank you for not coddling me. 36-year-old man. I went to two yeah. meetings a day for a year. I got into a sober living house. Weekly piss tests. I did whatever the ministry wanted. It wasn't a matter of arguing with the ministry. It wasn't like, what does Dan need? It's what does the ministry need? What do I need to do to make this all okay? Uh, you were at that... a point of
0: real, like, humility and willingness.
1: Yeah. Still. Yeah. And resentment. I was loaded. I was over the moon with resentment at the time. In fact, I think a lot of my early recovery was fueled on resentment. And I'll say that till the bitter end. Like I was like, I'm going to get sober before she does. I'm going to do this before she does. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, 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 but looking back now, I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying that's right. But what I'm saying is that this is my story and I'm yeah. telling it to the best of my ability. Maybe next week I'll have another realization and be like, no, it wasn't resentment. Actually, it was this, or it was that. But at this point in my growth, that's how I look back on that with as much honesty as I'm capable of having. Yeah. I say there's no bad reason. There's yeah. zero
0: bad reasons. Yeah. Whatever like gets
1: you through the amazing. door. Uh-huh. People say, Oh, you can't get sober for any other reason than yourself. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Now the challenge is staying sober, staying in that wellness and continuing to go and, and heal and move forward. Yes. Now that is something that has become my own journey. I'm doing yes, that for you, me. You
0: have to stay sober for yourself. But that comes
1: later, and that's families always think
0: that's supposed to come, and then the person goes and gets it's like, no, the person gets sober, and then that happens,
1: yeah. And And like I said, like I'm not here to say that is the way that it's supposed to go, but that was my experience.
0: I don't know if it's the way it's supposed to go, I can say it's the way it usually goes because I've been doing this 20 years, thousands of people, and sometimes people don't tell it that way,
1: yeah.
0: And when they're in recovery and they tell you their story, but I'm on the front lines, I can tell you that's what usually is.
1: Yeah, got a comment here that I want to look at. I just noticed it here from Richard Phillips. Resentment is a luxury we can't afford. That's the truth, man. Like, it served me for a minute. Like, it lit that fire and kept me pushing forward. But, man, Mm -hmm. like, it is not sustainable. Not Mm -hmm. sustainable. That, like, resentment, it's like resentment or relationships is the number one offender. What does that mean? I
0: know what that means, but some people, that's it's recovery lingo. What does that mean? Resentment is the number one
1: offender. Resentment is the number one offender in relapse. If anything's going to take you out, If anything's going to drive you to a place where you just cannot handle to be without your substance, Mm -hmm. odds are resentment is near the top of that list. And honestly, I was so done with using that my option was darker than using. I would have ended it all before I went back using. And to be quite honest, I didn't have my first suicidal thought out of all the shit that I just told you guys. I didn't have my first suicidal thought in my life until I was nine months in recovery. That was the first time where I, where it felt like that would be easier than what I was going through. Okay. Wow.
0: Yeah. There's no substance to numb anything then oh. no, you have to experience it all. Whatever's mm-hmm. happening.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: So tell us the happy ending. We need a happy ending, ending Dan. Oh, I've got one. Yeah. I've got, got, got one. It's not, an,
1: it's not an easy, happy ending, but it is okay. definitely happier we'll than the beginning. It. So okay. I got, I, so Long story short, I got my son. It was every other weekend for two hours, supervised access, a social worker in the room, furiously taking notes the entire time. Then it went to three hours and then it went to unsupervised access at the sober living facility. And then it was started three hours, six hours and overnights then two days, weekends. And so I got sober on February 12th of 2017. By July 31st of 2017, I was awarded interim custody of my three-year-old son. Wow. And him and I, we took on life together. I was still under the supervision at the the sober living house. We went to meetings. He got into preschool. I got a cart to pull behind my bike. Daddy fast going over the bumps and having fun and being mad and yelling at him and he's yelling at me and just getting through the day. That's another thing. We're not perfect. Parents aren't perfect. And when I had six months sober, like they say, get a plant and keep a plant alive. Like I got a three-year-old little boy that was raised in some unsavory circumstances.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. And then spent 10 months or so with his grandparents who did their best just to make him feel comfortable. So he didn't have a lot of rules. There wasn't a lot of boundaries. So anyways, he comes bouncing back. And of course, who came back with him? The puppy. Puppy came back. So I had puppy back in my life. And also my son, (laughs) but yeah, I made a lot of mistakes. I said some things I shouldn't have and I have behaved in ways that were less than savory and uh, it, life went on. We, we graduated the, it was called the coming home program. And uh, yeah, we graduated that and I got a job and moved into an apartment and he went to school and I kept going to meetings, doing my thing. Everybody in the rooms knew Grady and the little redhead and he'd get his big headphones on and watch his show while I was in a meeting. And and then Donna entered recovery and she came skidding off the streets.
0: I couldn't even read a better movie script. That's yeah. the happy ending we want right there. Yeah. yeah, we like
1: it. Oh, but long story short, it didn't go well at first. It got better as time went on. There was some court action taken and we had to fight about a whole bunch of things. But then a couple of years down the road, I was, it was in COVID. I was going to be a safety professional. I got into class school to be a safety professional. And the idea came into my head just randomly one day that I should start a podcast. And I'm like, where did that come from? I barely know how to open a Word document. So I did that. And February 12th of 2021, my four years sober, the very first episode of Hard Knocks Talks went live on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch TV. And yeah, yeah three months later, like it immediately became school with my side hustle. I'm having income and I've got a, I've got a fancy microphone and I've got a green screen. So That happened. And in January of 2022, I dropped out of school and I've been doing this full time ever since. And shortly after that, Donna came to me and she's like, what are you doing? This is amazing. I need some fulfillment in my life. I feel like I have no purpose. So she came to help me. And shortly after that we reconciled after five years apart, and those of you experience.
0: who are listening some of you may have seen my video a couple of weeks back where i said addiction is really a misdirected superpower this is mm. what i'm talking about this is it you take yeah. the addiction out and you let somebody use that obsessive relentless stop at nothing get what i want thing and it that, works right it works right
1: <laughs> wanting to feel better is not a defective character
0: that's right everybody yeah. wants to feel better
1: Exactly. And is
0: just a non-productive way of doing it.
1: <laughs> I got lost somewhere along the way. But this is what I found that the best way to overcome my substance use challenges is finding a meaningful and productive way to serve community. So now this is what we do. We're a family of streamers, I guess you could say using your
0: superpower for the good. That's what I like. So tell everybody where they can find you in case they want to listen to your podcast or or join
1: your lives. Oh, we are extremely easy to find. We can, uh, of course, Facebook is our main thing. We're always, I'm always posting stuff on Facebook. So Hard Knocks Talks on Facebook. You can find our content on YouTube. If you can't check us out live, that's cool. You can listen to us on your way to work on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts, really wherever you listen to podcasts. We also have a website, Hard Knocks talks.com and keep up to date on all upcoming streams and this is what we do full-time and we love it so
0: and I put your website link in the description for anybody who's looking awesome thank you so much for sharing that's an incredible story
1: well thanks so much for having me today sorry that we went a little long on the dark half and didn't get to spend too much time on the light half but I think well, that's how are. the
0: movies work right it's like all yeah. the build-up yeah I like it awesome yeah. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate it. You guys go check out Dan at Hard Knocks Talks. You you won't regret it. And he talks to a lot of other people and shares a lot of other
1: very inspirational stories. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. Thanks for listening to our audio. But
0: did you know these episodes are recorded live on YouTube? Join us Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern to participate in the discussion, ask questions, give and get feedback. Any featured links discussed in this episode can be found in the show notes. And lastly, my goal is to spread recovery faster than addiction is spreading, and I can't do it alone. You can help support my mission by leaving a review for this podcast or sharing it with a friend.